Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Linda Lagarde Grover at Anoka County Library, Northtown. Award-winning novelist and poet Linda Lagarde Grover is a poignant chronicler of the modern Native American experience. A member of the Boys Fort Band of Chippewa Tribe and longtime professor of American Indian Studies at UMN Duluth, Grover first made waves in the literary world with her 2010 short story collection, The Dance Boots. This debut garnered Grover the prestigious Flannery O'Connor Award. Recent releases include the essay collection Onagamiizing, Seasons of an Ojibwe Year in 2017, winner of the 2018 Minnesota Book Award for Memoir and Creative Nonfiction. Grover's first novel, The Road Back to Sweetgrass in 2014, followed the diverging paths of three Ojibwe women. In a rave review, the Pioneer Press notes, at heart, Sweetgrass is a story about longing for home, with traditions of powwows and wild ricing, and of coming of age when the Anishinaabe struggled to preserve their culture in a changing world. In her much-anticipated follow-up, In the Night of Memory, the author returns to northern Minnesota and weaves a moving tale of family loss and redemption. It hit shelves on April 2nd. Thank you for that kind introduction. Well, I'm, I'm Linda and I, I live in Duluth and so my husband and I came down here this evening. So I, I'm, a, um, I'm a member of the Boys Fort Band of the Minnesota Chippewa Tribe and that band has a reservation that is north of Duluth a few hours. It's in two locations and so the Net Lake reservation lands are um, like 19 miles west of Orr, Minnesota and then the, um, the Lake Vermilion section is, um, is on, the, on the shores of Lake Vermilion, Minnesota. So those two, those two places are like 50 miles apart, so it's quite a trek between the two. The Net Lake was the, it's, it's the larger area, and the, it used to be the larger population. But since, since the band built a casino, what, probably about 35 years ago, um, over on Lake Vermilion, the population, the native population on Vermilion has grown then. And so now they're pretty close to 50-50. The reason we have two sections is when, I'm this history lesson here, but when the 1854 treaty went into effect, it was a land session treaty where lands were signed over and then some were returned as reservations, as 
part of something nobody especially wanted, but they had, their backs were up against a wall, so they negotiated the best they could. What happened is Net Lake then was um, where a, a reservation area was established was actually outside of the, the boundary line, uh, much of it was, and so then uh, after a court, court battle that took, didn't take all that long, but the Lake Vermilion part was restored then. But that never went into allotment and that land is owned in commonality by all of us uh, who are band members, which is cool. So Net Lake then was like most other places around here, divided up into individual land allotments, which were assigned then to the band members over a, a period of time. Allotments stopped in, I don't know, before 1928, I think. And so we, we don't have land allotted to us anymore, but now we are descendants and many of us have, um, whose families didn't lose their land in various ways, um, do own little interests in it, tiny, tiny little percentages. So the reason I mention that is because in my fiction work, I, I have a lot of stuff that, uh, that centers around a land allotment and the house on that allotment. And so in The Road Back to Sweetgrass, the allotment is, um, sits in an area that they call Sweetgrass because you can smell it often when you're in that area, but the mysterious thing is that nobody can ever find it in that place. And that's not all that unusual. You just, you know, you're looking for sweetgrass and you smell it. You don't know where it is. There, it's, it's odd. There are some spots in Duluth like that. You, you could go into the woods and you might never ever find it. You just don't know. Sweetgrass is a mysterious thing. It is one of the four sacred medicines of the Ojibwe people and I think that is one reason why it is such an elusive, elusive kind of, of thing. So anyway, I do talk about the land a lot and about that land allotment. And when I say the allotment, that means that property, it's like a 40-acre property. When I talk about the allotment house, on a lot of these places, um, a building was uh, put together or people put it together themselves out of lumber. And so sometimes they called them lumber buildings or lumber houses, um, and they were covered with tar paper. And so um, if people used to talk about the tar paper shacks, um, which is kind of a derogatory kind of way of, of looking at it, I guess. But these were little tiny places, and they might be, I don't know, a really big one might be three quarters the size of this room. Most of them were about half, I think. And they were, um, they were put, put there for the people to have a, a dwelling so that they would be in a permanent place and not be um, doing that seasonal traveling for hunting and fishing and harvesting that the Ojibwe used to do. But there are still plenty of people who do that. So I bring those things into my work. I started writing fiction, I don't know, probably in the late 90s or around the, tur the turn of the century, of the new century here. <laughs> and um, the reason I did is, I'd, you know, it took me a long time to go to school. And the last thing I did, I was working on a, on a doctoral program and I wanted to do, it was in education, and so I wanted to do research. For me, I wanted to look at, at Indian boarding schools and to interview people who either went there or um, were descendants of, of boarding school children. And because people were um, dying, you know, they were, they were pass passing from this earth, um, it, was quite a, it was quite a privilege and an honor to be able to interview people. And now almost all the people I interviewed are, you know, are dead. They're gone and, um, of the older folks. And so I, 
I didn't, I don't know. I got done with my dissertation and I just did not feel like trying to publish it as, as it was. I felt, I felt the need to, to protect the people who had been kind enough to, to share their stories with me, even though some of them are saying, you go ahead and use my name, I want people. But even so, the University of Minnesota did not want me to do that anyway. So I had to make up names for them, which a couple people are like, what do you mean my name is Richard? You know, and <laughs> I thought, well, I like that name. So, <laughs> so um, <clears throat> that's when I started writing fiction. I'd been writing poetry for a long time and little bits and pieces of things, but never, I was never, um, I never considered myself to be a writer. I was just a person who wrote stuff. And um, probably sometime when I was in my 40s, I started saving stuff, because I used to just kind of throw it, because I, you know, then it, a lot of it was really very poor, poor stuff. So I started writing short stories and I started keeping things in a box. This is sort of a legend, uh, you know, about me, about I have a, a box of stories, but I actually really do, even though they also exist in my computer. But I, li I, like, the, I like the paper copy. And so I have them, I used to have them all contained in one cardboard box. Then I moved them into a couple of those milk crates with the sliding folders, which I really like too. Um, so I still have some in a couple of milk crates and I still have some in a couple of cardboard boxes. And um, I, I am not, the, you know, the most organized writer. But I, I always have something I can find then. If I feel like building on something, I can usually find it. Except I'm looking for this one story that I can't find right now. <laughs> but I, but I, it's in my head anyway. And sooner or later, it'll, it'll surface. <laughs> so that's, you know, I, I'm not a, a type of writer that has, you know, a lot of organization or discipline or anything like that or a, or a, a routine. I, I write when, when I feel like it's time to. And so sometimes I write in my office, and more often I write at home when I'm sitting on the couch and the TV is on, and that's, that's fine. So far, none of my plots have been what I'm watching on TV, I don't think, which is really good. <laughs> I don't want somebody calling me up and suing me. <laughs> so. What I wanted to write about, first of all, was the boarding school experience. But as I was doing my interviewing, one of the men um, who didn't like his name, Richard, um, started talking about when he went on the federal relocation program in the, in the 1960s and how he had been from up north and he lived in Hibbing, he had been relocated to um, Cleveland. And in the 50s, 60s, and um, in, even in the 70s, um, people who were determined to be the best and brightest, most able, and this involved young people, so people in their late teens and into their 20s, maybe people with young families, were relocated under a federal program to somewhere far away from their own home, from their own reservation or their own native community. And so they were relocated in places where they were going to be maybe getting a job or getting some job training, and they would just melt into um, the big iron kettle of America. And with a little heat, um, they would um, disappear and perhaps evaporate, I guess, if you turned it up high enough. So, um, so that is what the federal relocation program was. And I do write about that a little bit in the um, Road Back to Sweetgrass book. But when he was talking, because we're talking about boarding schools and about his mom and stuff, he went off to relocate, talk about relocation. And then he said, but you know what those federal relocation programs were? He said, they were the same you know, cussed a little bit as the, um, 
as the boarding school program. They were designed to do the same thing. He said they, they were designed to make us not be here anymore. And with those words, I thought, well, you know, of course. How, how, could, how could I not have given that thought? And so I, as I was writing my fiction then, which has a base of a, a fictionalized Indian boarding school called um, Herod, which is very much like the Hayward School was in Wisconsin, in Hayward, Wisconsin. As I was doing that, I was also writing about federal Indian policy. And where I work, that is what our program is all about, federal policy and living a, a life that then must be lived, a, not just with the background of that in history, but in reaction to this all the time. And so as I really got into policy a little bit more, I got into the termination, this was the real, the real word used, the federal termination policies of the 50s through the, actually the, through 1988, and, um, and then into more uh, contemporary policies. And I got into what are the effects, and I started out, what are the effects of boarding school education on people who went there and their descendants? What, are, what do people think these are? And that was what my dissertation was all about. But at, as I go in looking into other federal policies after the education policies from a century ago, or less, 50 years ago sometimes, um, I started writing fiction set against that backdrop. And then against what, what are the results of some of these policies. And so the book that, I, that just came out last Tuesday um, in, the, in the Night of Memory then really is about the disappearance of an American Indian woman in the early 1970s and about the effects on her family and her community. So the story is about two girls, two little girls, and um, the, the, old, the older one is, um, is um, a very fragile person, even as, a, even as a child, and she is you know, somewhat developmentally delayed. And then the second girl, who's a year and a half younger then, has, um, has all the attributes that I think you would need to, to survive. What a thing to say about you know, like, a, like a child who's almost three at the beginning of the book. But who's going to survive? And I mean, it's just, it's, uh, it's the luck of the draw. I mean, at the moment that you're born, what, you know, what traits you possess. And so the book goes then, the story goes from the early 70s through, I don't know, probably, I don't know, 10 years ago maybe. But the background to that too then is what happened before that. And to me, that is so important because it, it doesn't just happen in a vacuum that a Native woman disappears. It's been happening as long as I can remember. And it's sad to say it, um, it, it isn't uh, shockingly unusual. It's just very, very sad and, and kind of sickening at this point in Indian country. So I, I just started writing, writing about that. But when I started, I was just going to write about two girls in the foster system. And then I, as I was writing, I thought, well, this doesn't happen in a vacuum either. How, how do you get into the foster system? And so I thought, well, of course. What have I, I been doing for all these years here? I've been looking at what leads up to what, what is going on today. So that's what it's about. There was a, um, there's a very nice person here, and her name is um, Gurley. And she appears in the dance booths where she's a 
young woman home for the summer from boarding school, and then she, then she goes back on the train with her siblings, and we never hear from her again, except that here she is. So I'm, I'm looking. <clears throat> there was somebody who reviewed this book, and it just came out yesterday, and what she, um, what she was thinking when she read this book was that um, she was quoting Auntie Gurley about what's going on, um, how, how this came to be. And so what Auntie Gurley had to say, even though I can't find it here, is that there changes happen because there's a lot that's been going on here. There is the lo loss of land, of course, but there's more than that. There is the, the, board, the Indian boarding schools and families losing their children and people, um, and, then, and then alcoholism and liquor and lives being wrecked and all these things that lead up to what is Indian country today. And that includes Loretta, the woman who, who vanished in the story. And so Gurley, who is a really, really old lady when she's saying this, is telling us this from her perspective. Yeah, it isn't just that she, that she lost, her, lost her kids to the county and was gonna have to sign them away. There's a whole lot of stuff in the background. And so the history then is what, what we have now is, is building itself on. It's our history, that's what Aunt Gurley says. You know, it's ours. And so um, I had a friend once when I lived up, up on the range who um, asked me, because I was starting to do my examination of, of the history of what was going on. I went back to school then and went to the community college and took history classes and, and she, she said, uh, and then my aunt started calling me up around that time and telling me different things and my girlfriend said to me, why would you even want to think about something like that? It all seems so sad and it's all in the past. It's all history. And I thought, well, that's our history. Without it, you know, we could erase that and what would we be? We could be Disney's Pocahontas, <laughs> perhaps. So I'm going to read a little bit. Okay, so I'm going to read the beginning of this. Um, the book has this very handy thing at the front of all who are here. And um, it's got kind of a family tree of relatives and then these other relatives here. Gurley will explain this in the book, but Indian people have a lot of relatives lots of times, these big extended families, and some of them are not technically by blood, but they are still family, you know. So, um, so we have t millions of cousins, but they might not actually, you know, if you're writing this down, they might not actually be. <clears throat> so the two girls are called, the first girl is called Rainfall Dawn, and the second girl is called Azure Sky, and their mother is Loretta, and she is one of the Galette family from um, the fictional reservation called Moje Point. So this is the beginning of it. Our mother, Loretta, gave us the most beautiful name she could think of. She gave us a memory, one that I have told to Rainey so many times that to her it has become real, though I wonder if it never happened at all and is only one of my dreams. And when Rainey was four and I was going on three, our mother gave us to the St. Louis County foster care system. It was the same year that Duluth's mining heiress, Elizabeth Congdon, was murdered by her daughter and son-in-law. The crime was spectacular, and although it happened decades ago now, it is still talked about around town, and every time it comes up, I think of my mother. 
she and Miss Congdon, whose lives never intersected, are linked in this single way. Rainfall Dawn and Azure Sky are our real names, the ones Loretta wrote down for our birth certificates, though she called us Rainy and Azure most of the time. When she wanted something, or was stressed, or had been drinking, or all three, baby and sister. Rainy was baby because she was born first, and I was sister because I came second a year and a half later. Nobody has called us baby and sister since the morning Loretta was getting us ready to go on that cab ride to the county. We haven't seen her or heard from her since, I think. I, I'm not sure. Although Rainy and I have forgotten Loretta's face, Rain occasionally thinks she sees our mother in the gracefully bending woman at the butcher counter whose long hair sweeps to the side as she looks at a tray of pork chops. She might see her in a traditional dancer wearing a dark blue calico dress at the Moje Point Spring powwow, who turning to face the flags during grand entry is in fact our Aunt Margie. Or in the bundled up homeless woman picking aluminum cans from the trash barrel at the bus hub in downtown Duluth. I have forgotten our mother's voice and yet I still hear her husky whisper from the night she woke us to see the northern lights and watch her dance. And it is this memory that I choose for us to keep, whether it was just a dream or really happened. And so my mother still whispers to me. When it starts to rain and drops of liquid quench the thirst within the sparse leafiness of the old maple tree in the front yard, the patter deepening on saturated leaves, rolling water onto the dryness of exposed roots. She whispers to me in the absence of rain, on days that the wind picks up and scatters dried leaves across a sidewalk, in the breaking of a city bus, or in the weighty freedom of northern lights in the night sky. Sometimes I hear her all day, and at other times not for months, and I think she is gone for good after all. And then once again, she whispers, and on the air grown warm and damp with her breath is what I had forgotten. The perfume of cigarette, the yeasty sweetness of white bread and red wine, azure, azure sky, sister, rainy, rainy dawn, baby. The night of the memory, I woke to our mother whispering through my dreams of a buffalo nickel glowing in the sky, its shine dulled through the fly-specked and finger-smudged windows. And through the fog of interrupted dreams, Rain, who slept on the other end of the couch, kicking me across the chest and asking, is it morning, Mama? Rainy, rainy dawn, baby. I would recognize the sound of her voice today if she sat behind us on the bus. It is a young voice that I remember, lightly husky, with just the start of cigarette smoke settling tar into her throat. Today it would be lower in pitch, I suppose, but I would know the urgency and loneliness of our mother's solitary life and plaintive speech. Would she remember who we were, rainy small and azure tall? Would she recognize us, recognize what we have become, two halves of one sister? Our mother, if she is still alive, would recognize us. There is no doubt about it, she would. She is our mother after all, of course she would. From the bus seat behind mine and Rainey's, she might see only the backs of our heads, but would know us anywhere. She would remember the color of Rainey's hair, the darkest brown shot through with red highlights, this morning combed and parted by me exactly down the middle. 
Rainy is so short that in turning my head, I can see the entire top of hers, where her braids have been crossed and tightly pinned from ear to ear. Where her hair is parted, her vanilla caramel skin is slightly reddened from the sun. My own hair, a cloudy brown as dark as rain's, although not as red, waves and sways from its high ponytail with the movement of the bus. I am so tall that it clears the bus seat and brushes the hand that our mother lifts to touch the back of my shoulder as she says our names in her voice that is now older, rougher. I turn toward her voice and the perfume of her warm breath, the cigarette smoke and yeasty red wine, and because she was never really there, she is gone. We haven't seen her since that morning of our surrender. Rainy, though, who sees impossible sights, sees our mother everywhere. But I listen, and when the sound, with the, in the sound of rain on dry leaves, she whispers our names, I turn. So, I know it's, this is a very, very sad book. And <laughs> <laughs> but, but at the same time, it's, it's, um, it's real. And I, you know, fiction can be more, more real than nonfiction. I think fiction can be the, the real stuff. And I do think that's what, what this is. So they have what somebody who reviewed this book said salvaged lives as they grow, as they get to be older girls. So they disappear. They don't know that they're not going to see their mom again. They disappear into the foster system. They never see her again. Um, and they're lost from their relatives and everybody else because nobody realizes that Loretta isn't there anymore. So leaves them with the county says she's going to be coming back after she's done with treatment, and then they don't see her again. Nobody knows at the point at which she, at which she disappears. So in this book, we see, we actually do see Loretta, but only from other perspectives. We see her when she's a little girl, when she's about five or six years old. We see her again briefly when she's um, in her late teens. But the girls never, never see their mother again and she's just gone. So one reason I wrote this is I, I really, you know, I don't know how wide a, wide a population, you know, American Indian fiction written by somebody up in northern Minnesota goes, but I just wanted, I wanted to tell a story like that, and I, I expect that every Native family I know has a story like this, where somebody, whatever happened, I, you know, or, I mean, it's really awful, you know, nowadays we have a lot of cameras and stuff, so, I mean, in Duluth, there are women who walk past the security camera. It's the last time they were seen. Where did they go? What did they do? So, um, so it's, a, it's a mystery. It's a difficult thing. Sometimes it's a variety of ways that people disappear. Sometimes they are found in, <sighs> under, under having had a terrible, god-awful tragedy happen to them. But with Loretta, we never know. The girls never know. But they go on living their lives. I mean, they have no choice. So they, get, they go into the foster system, they get reunited, they go into some other foster homes, and eventually under the Indian Child Welfare Act, this is another piece of policy, in 1978, in which um, decision-making for where children might be placed, fostered or adopted outside of the home, decisions, more of these decisions were made by the tribes themselves. And so people, I know there's people who say, well, that means that nobody can adopt Indian kids. Well, it's very complicated, and the decision is, is made with, ultimately, many times by the tribe. 
and it's not perfect, but it's what it's what we've got. It strengthened the tribes for sure, which is you know I guess a, a byproduct of this that because for many people like me the the most important thing is it um, it made it. Um, it made it possible for families and extended families to be able to um, to keep keep more of their children around. We'd already gone through this stuff where you know children had been you know my family I mean three generations maybe four of my family um, were separated out and the children sent away to school and didn't see their parents. Um, so you know to follow with tragedies where the where now the mothers are disappearing is is something that I I I just I felt like I wanted to to write about that, but also what leads up to it. And that's why we get to see L Loretta when she's adorable little five-year-old who'd drive you crazy, um, you know. And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Linda Lagarde Grover and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member inquiring if Grover's newest book contains multiple perspectives like Sweetgrass. It does have multiple perspectives. And so it's, um, in Sweetgrass, one of the perspectives comes from um, Joe Washington, the elderly man. But in this, all the perspectives are from women. So it's really a, um, I, you know, I mean, women have, you know, traditionally been closer to the children and, um, and to things around, around the home. And actually, traditionally, Native women um, um, owned and had say over everything to do with the home and the household. And, um, and a couple that parted, um, she, you know, the home was hers. And so I just thought from this, um, I guess this, what you'd call native feminism, even though many older ladies, when that term first was heard, would say, we don't need that. That's how we live anyway. What are they talking about? We wouldn't want to go backwards, you know. Um, but because it, these, are, these are matriarchal communities, they're not matrilineal, but they're matriarchal, which is more important, I think, um, because it's a societal thing then. Um, I, I wanted those voices then, and you know, actually I kind of allowed those voices then to be, to be here. Um, certainly there are men in this book, and men, there's a, a character in this book who does the real legwork and the really important stuff as far as you know, getting the girls back with their family in a foster placement in that way. So there was an older lady in Duluth who was one of our matriarchs some years ago. And um, there was some stuff going on in our community that another woman and I were kind of thinking, we need, we need some help with this situation. What will we do? So we went and visited this lady. And we're talking to her. And I felt, I felt really small, like we were really small children. But we're telling her this, and you know, we're really, really worried and really concerned. So she says, I'll call and she, this guy. So she picks up the phone and dials his phone. And she said, she, she said this is you know, me. And, she's, and uh, he's greeting her and all this stuff. And then she goes, men should lead. And then she told him what she wanted him to do. <laughs> 
And so I think this is, and I think this is the way the way things are are often done and have often been done. I mean, men are often larger and might have a little more um, power and credibility when they're out in greater society. And so I think this is something that has been um, that probably continues, even though I see I see little shifts in this with a, a lot of women who are just plain saying it <laughs> these days too. So, but it's, these are from women's perspectives, and there's a variety. I mean, sometimes the girls are speaking and they're really young, or they're, you know, they're, they're a little bit older, or, you know, one of them's, you know, kind of seeing this guy she kind of is attracted to. She can't figure out why, but she is. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then, you know, when they're quite a bit older than that. And the women, the older women especially in that family, who want to talk about this. This audience member asks about the government's Indian termination policy. That was official federal Indian policy from 1953 until it was actually um, rescinded in 1988. And but of course, then it began before that because nothing. Some you know, somebody Congress doesn't wake up in the morning and say, "Hey, let's pass these termination policies." So um, what it meant was the termination of the way it was sold was freeing American Indian people from their dependence upon the federal government. And what that meant was the terminating of tribes as nations, as sovereign bodies, as anything that even exists. And with that then, the termination of Indianness of all Indian people. And so that'd be another way to just make people disappear. They'd just be gone. So you, don't, you can't just say, yeah, you're not Indians anymore. Um, this is know, fairly modern America here. And so the decision was met, left up to tribes, but the tribes were picked, hand-picked, and they, tribes that met some criteria, because this is right after the Second World War. During the Second World War, lots of native people, lots of guys and girls too went in the service. A lot of people moved to cities and worked in the war industry or in various other places to replace people who were, you know, working or, or overseas. And so these were generations who had also gone to boarding school. So they could read and write in English. They'd, you know, they'd gone to school. They'd lived in towns. They, they knew how the majority world looked and worked and stuff. And so try, and could, could this particular tribe possibly make it on their own? Did they have the ability to, to uh, create, a, uh, cr create jobs and create a way to raise money? And so, um, they were, they were kind of chosen. There were four different criteria. And um, so tribes that were, were offered this. So why would anybody do this? Because they would negotiate other things, kind of like negotiating treaties. In treaties, all kinds of different things were negotiated. So, I mean, you'd get this money put into federal trust for till, till you were competent to handle it, which meant never. And, um, and you'd get like a bag of seeds or a plow or a bolt of cloth and shoes, things like that. This happened with termination too. And the real sweetener was, and we will, in the case of um, the Menominee tribe in Wisconsin, which is like the classic example of everything that can go wrong, um, they offered a, I can't remember how much it was, it's like $1,500 a head to people, and then they put it to a vote. And desperate people, you know, whose income, you know, it was a different economy then too. I mean, you know, it's, it wasn't like people who had like $200 a year also, you know, they, they ate in other ways too. They didn't, that wasn't all their grocery money. So it was very complicated stuff, but things went wrong right away for the Menominees and for other tribes then that were terminated. Um, 
they found they didn't really have a way to raise revenue. They didn't have anybody who could pay taxes. Their roads fell apart. Their hospitals, their, their county welfare assistance programs, they had nothing to fund this. People were getting um, tuberculosis spread like crazy through Indian communities. There were people who actually um, were suffering from um, effects of malnutrition, all kinds of terrible things. So some college kids then in the mid-50s, some of those Menominee kids who were in, going to school, I think in Madison, spent their lives then getting this restored. So in 1973, President Nixon, who was actually friendly to native nation, nation-to-nation -nation communication with them in the United States, um, signed, um, signed the, um, the ending of the, he overturned House uh, con Concurrent Resolution 108, and, um, and the Menominees were restored. And that was, the, that was the death blow to termination policy. But it took 15 more years before it was repealed. This question is about how Grover landed on the title in the Night of Memory. Were there other contenders as well? Oh, yes. I had my own special title that nobody liked. So, okay, my title, my title was Azure Sky and Rainfall Dawn. I still really like it, but overall in working with, this is published by the University of Minnesota Press, and in working with um, primarily the, the acquisitions editor and other people, we came up with several different names for the book, and this one really kind of, I don't know, this one kind of resonated with people. And then when they put the cover together, and you know, it's, it's got, it isn't really block printing, it's kind of hanging a little bit. It kind of reminds me of crescent moons, I'm not sure why, it's kind of hanging. And um, so, I, you know, I like the cover. I never would have thought of this for a cover. I, you know, I can't take any credit, but it really is very, very pretty. And it has colors of northern lights, and it has a teeny little bit of green in there teeny little bit of purple so yeah so in the night of memory I guess as as we were talking about what are what are things that are important in this book that might connect to a title that that came up and so um, I, I think it's a I think it's a it's a good title too I like the title our next question comes from an audience member wondering about the size of the Minnesota Chippewa tribe I don't know what do we got 40,000 people maybe that's not, you know, but here's the thing. Those are people who are members of the tribe, who meet, the tribes decide who their members are going to be and what are the criteria for belonging to that tribe. And that's a good thing, so they, they decide. So there's a wide variety as you go across the country and hear them, what people, what the tribe determines, and these are people we elect to, you know, so we have tribal governments, we have elections and stuff, but we have a whole lot of people who are descendants of tribal members who may not be enrolled in the tribe, and they're not being counted then anywhere, but they are Indian just the same. I, uh, it's a, this is something, this is something that is fairly recent in history, um, some of these things that really ex exclude people who are, are certainly Indian and, um, and are certainly, are, they're our blood. So it's just, it's one of those things that's going to have to work itself out some, somehow before we disappear, which was the federal government's plan all along. So we're just, in some ways, through the way we govern ourselves, I think we're helping them, which certainly wasn't anything we intended to do. 
But that's my soapbox, yeah. This audience member asks if awareness efforts are increasing nationwide for missing Native women. I think, I think people are more aware, uh, you know, on the national on the national scene, I guess. There's, I mean, they actually, there's, you know, they, there'll be, you know, like marches and demonstrations and gatherings and healings. I'm not sure what healing is going to come of any of this, but that's, I'm getting older and cranky about these things, you know. <laughs> so, so um, it's MMIW, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. But there's not like a, a national clearinghouse or anything like that. I think it's just what, what is being used. And so, you know, there are, um, um, there's a few people from the area where, where I live who actually went to, uh, I guess like a, a gathering, kind of like a, kind of like a conference. And at that they had a jingle dress dance. And the jingle dress is an Ojibwe dress with, that has those jingly cones sewn on it, so the, the dress kind of, well, jingles. It makes, makes sounds when you walk and when you dance. And so, so there were some women from, from where I live who went to this and actually did a dance with, there were probably, they said there were probably like 100 women there and they were all doing this. And, and it was, you know, I think the jingle dress is, um, they call it a singing dress, but it's, um, it's also, a, some people have called it like a, a dress that prays. And so that's part of the, the singing and the prayer and the, the jingling sound and the dance um, is all, all meant as like a, it's a prayer. Healing is the word that's used, but I'm, maybe the word just isn't quite what everything really means here as far as, you know, find, you know, find her, bring her home. There's an exhibit right now at All My Relations Gallery, which is in Minneapolis. Um, yes. Franklin Avenue, and the exhibit that's on right now is called Bring, I think it's called Bring Her Home. And they did one last year, and it was very successful, and then it traveled, and so this year they decided to do it again. And so it's an art exhibit. It has many different, different things going on. It's a small, small gallery, but it has stuff. It actually has, I've never done this before, but it actually has um, pieces that I made, and I'm not an artist, but this has to do with a couple of photographs taken by my sister who was, was um, killed by a, a meth dealer um, ran over her and took off and she, if it hadn't been for a couple of young people going by, she might have been one of these Native women who mysteriously die and nobody knows. But um, anyway, that's a couple of her photographs that I embellished with a couple other things. And so it's really, it's her work and mine too. And I submitted them and they actually took them. So, but I'm not an artist, but I just thought one day that I'd like to do that. This question is what Grover is working on now. I'm writing long essays, and they're, because um, I, you know, like Anagame Singh um, is short little essays, and it's like a slice of life, things that go through a, through a year. And they're not completely seasonal, but it's, they're kind of separated in four season themes, because old time, traditional Ojibwe ways are, you know, the lifetime, life, life cycle was um, all through four seasons each year, and it kind of spiraled to the next and next. And I thought it worked that way. But this, what I'm working on, and I, I don't know if it's going to work, but I'm trying to do like five and five of things that are, things that are definitely fiction and things that are definitely not fiction, and how they actually intertwine. We'll see if that works, but that's what, I'm, that's what I'm working on. We'll see. This question is about Linda Lagarde Grover's research process. 
my research is constant, and it's um, so I'm I just do it all all the time, um, and I'm always looking at because our department is so the the people in our department they have they are real scholars in federal Indian policy, and so I just kind of hopped along with them, and and um, so that's my focus is always though on what people believe what they see the, the effects are on themselves, their families, their communities, their tribes. So it's always perceptions. So I figure there's a lot of people, you know, who are able and who, and who like, you know, historical you know, and contemporary um, research that's kind of like bean counting and, um, and, but, and I'm so lucky that there are people who do this. Because then I just jump in on what they're doing and yeah, so. <laughs> The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering about Grover's writing process. Well, I make up things like in the middle of the night, and then, <laughs> and then, and then you know, I I used to try to remember to jot them down, but I don't do that anymore. And so during the day, then I just kind of sit and write, and they things go in their in their direction. This book too, I I would have. This looks like a book that could have been really plotted out in that way, but it had to. It really had to emerge, and I'm I'm glad it went in the direction it did. I mean, a story of girls. And I worked on this story about these girls for a long time, bits and pieces about girls girls in the foster system, but what it was missing is why why were they there? Why? What, what happened with their mother? What's her story? And, what's, and if I'm really writing about effects on communities and tribes, what, what is the story of that community and that tribe and that family and extended family? Thank you so much. And that wraps up our Anoka County Library Northtown event with Linda Lagarde Grover. Make sure to catch our next club book event with Kwame Anwachi at Hennepin County Library North Regional. Top chef finalist Kwame Anwachi is one of America's best-known chefs of color and a vocal ambassador for Afro-Caribbean fusion cuisine. His new memoir, Notes from a Young Black Chef, chronicles his journey as a person of color in this competitive industry. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubbookMN. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just made too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.